our desire through this short series that we started at the beginning of the year was for us to cultivate a love of God's Word. That we would be a people, as we're studying God's Word, reading His Word, taking it into our heart, would grow to delight in His Word, to take joy in His Word, to feast upon His Word. And what we've endeavored to do over these weeks is to give you some tools to help you grow in the knowledge of God and to grow in your understanding of the Word of God that would lead to you actually putting it into practice in your life. So we looked at a threefold principles for understanding. One of the weeks we took the first one there was observation. And in observation, we're seeking to answer the question, what does it say? We want to have a good grasp around what is the text that we're reading say to us? What is God saying through that text? Not to us, but to the people it was first originally intended to be uh, understood by. The second portion of that we talked about is interpretation. We need to interpret the text. And by that, we're answering the question, what does it mean? And the primary question in that, what does it mean, isn't, isn't what does it mean to me, but what does it mean? What did God intend for it to mean to the people it was written Two, and today we'll look at application. What do I do now? What do I do with what I've understood by what it says and what it means? Now, how do I put that into practice in my life? That's going to be our focus today. There is a work of application that you and I must do. The Word of God is personally applicable to our life, to our situation, and in that it yields incredible fruit in our life. We don't want to be people who just rip verses out of context, right? We don't just want to open our Bible, take a verse, and go, ah, okay, I already know what that means. Let me apply it to my life. We don't want to be people who look for hidden symbolic meaning in in Scripture, things that no one else has ever discovered, but somehow I've got this little secret knowledge because I've got some spiritual or allegorical interpretation to a passage of Scripture, Nor are we people who just want to inject our own meaning to it by approaching the text from an incorrect, in an incorrect manner. We want to be, as Paul instructed Timothy to do, to be people who rightly handle the word of truth because it is the word of God. It's the word of God. And that should have supreme authority and weight in our life in all things and inform it. So we're in the first chapter of James. We're going to read uh, verses 19 through 27, even though we're not going to spend uh, all of our time in those portions, but with a concentration on verses 22 through 25. Hear the words of the living God. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer 
who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is, a religious, he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. These are the words of our Lord. It's a great portion of Scripture. James is a book of the Bible with uh, tremendous practical implications of the gospel in our life and how it should work out in our life. But one of the things I'm most immediately impressed by as I read this particular portion in James' letter is that he's saying here that, that true receiving and hearing of the Word of God must lead to a godly response. It must lead to godly action in the life of the person who receives the word and hears it. Verse 19, what he's saying here is it's just not a knowledge of right action, knowing that that one needs to act rightly. He's saying here it's not enough to know that one must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Or the very fact that he tells us, hey, here's what pure and undefiled religion is all about. The knowledge of that right action has to actually work itself out in practice in the Christian life. We must become people who are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and who have the corresponding works commensurate with what we profess to believe with our mouths. We do those things, not just know that we must do those things. And that's the sum and substance of the application of God's word to one's life and practice. He goes on to say with this appeal to personal holiness. He talks about the putting away of all moral filth. The idea of that is like stripping off dirty clothing. Like let's say you got muddied, right? You were working out in the yard. You're all filthy. You're all dirty. You just want to strip that clothing off. And you rightly don't want to put it back on after you've showered, right? That's kind of the idea here. There's no desire, uh, after putting away the wicked desires and deeds of our former way of life, to pick those things back up again. And we replace those former evil desires, that, those, that former desire to wallow in the dirt and moral filth of this world, with a humble receptivity to God's word. And James calls that the implanted word. We don't really see it um, phrased that way in any of the other uh, apostolic letters here, but he calls it the implanted word. The idea here of God planting his revealed truth in the heart of his people so that it can take root and spring up into a righteous life. It's what God instructed his people to do back in Deuteronomy when he told his people, giving them the law, he says, you need to have it in your heart. You need to have it in your heart But it was impossible for them to really have it into their heart. So Jeremiah 31 then gives us the promise of the new heart. And that new heart would actually have God's word now written, embedded in this heart of flesh that God was going to give them. And now they would have a desire to actually do it because it wasn't just on their mouth. It wasn't just something they read or heard. It was actually in their heart to want to do and fulfill it. The seed of the word of truth planted in the soil of the human heart will flourish into a tree of life, which James says this implanted word, which is able to save your 
souls. What's well, powerful, isn't it? The power of God's word, which has this capacity, this ability to save our souls. But in what way does it save our souls? How does that happen? What does it mean to receive this implanted word? Well, when we talk about receiving the word, what do we mean by it? It's not just nodding our head saying, I heard it. To receive it means you believe it. To, to receive it means you embrace it. You take it in. You trust in it. You embrace everything it says concerning whatever truth it's presenting. In this case, the implanted word of the good news. Everything concerning Christ. Everything concerning salvation through Jesus Christ. We receive, we believe, and we trust in. And that gospel seed implanted in the heart, what, what does it do then? It springs up and begins this transformative work in our life. That's the power of the gospel, the word of God, to save you and to sanctify you. That continual ongoing work where God is working in you godliness and holiness and bringing you into conformity to Christ. It's not the printed word on a page that has this power. It's not the mere idle hearing of the word of God that has this ability and power to save you. No, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit that comes by believing the truth of His Word. And when we receive it, we're saying that the Word of God has the ultimate authority in our life. We submit ourselves completely and fully to it. It's the authority in all matters of faith and life and practice. Scripture tells us that faith comes by what? Hearing. But that hearing cannot just be just, ah, I just kind of heard it in the background, a background noise in our life. No, it's hearing through the word of Christ, and that hearing carries with it the implication of fully trusting in it, believing it, and doing it. There's hearing the word, and then there's hearing the word, right? And there's a world of difference between those two. And here's the crux of what James is getting to here. I want you to notice the connecting word but, right? Here's why we read things in the context. We read before, we read after. We're going to focus on just a couple verses, but we need to know what came before it and what comes after because there's a continuing flow of thought here. When we talked about observation, I told you to pay attention to connecting words. In this case, but tells us this phrase doesn't stand on its own. It's continuing. It's connecting two clauses together. So we read what just came before it. We see this here, right? He's, he's continuing the thought. The implanted word that is able to save your souls does not just come from hearing the word, but also by doing the word. By doing the word. It's the sanctifying work. Don't just be a hearer of the word only, James is saying. Be a doer. And it's expressed as an imperative. That means it's a command. James is not offering to us a suggestion here. Hey, guys, you know what? You know what's a good idea? You don't just hear the word. It's a good idea to also do the word, you know? No, he's, it's a command that he's expressing to followers of Jesus Christ here. Now, he gives a warning here. Because he's saying that those that only hear the word and not do it open themselves up to a type of self-deception. And here's why there's no confusion as to what James means by receiving the implanted word. 
Because if you don't put it into practice, if you're just a mere hearer of the word only, you deceive yourself. It's not just mental assent. If you don't respond with corresponding action of doing what the word is telling you to do, you deceive yourself. And I think that's disturbing, isn't it? It's disturbing because there's a danger of some type of fatal self-deception that can settle in on those who only hear and do not do. How do you deceive yourself? And I think there's, there's really like two ways this deception takes root. First of all, there's a, a sense of deception. The way you deceive yourself by being a hearer only and not a doer is that you begin to think that just because you are hearing the word or reading the word, that it's okay. That even if I don't do it, I can. And, and I think we see this kind of thing in life where there's this maybe external conformity to doing Christianly things, like reading the Bible. Maybe even doing my morning devotions. Maybe being a a consistent church attender. But somehow, there's not been a translation of those activities into the heart. Outward signs that it looks like, but they're actually not doing the Word of God. They're actually not obeying what they're hearing and reading in Scripture. That listening must be accompanied by obedience. And if there's not, there's something off. There's something that's a little skewed here. The gospel has the power to save. The gospel has the power to transform and put God's law in our hearts. But there's also embedded in the gospel a summons to obedience. I don't want you to tune out or miss what I'm going to say here, okay? James's language can be a little tricky at times, and people think, well, James is espousing a salvation by works apart from grace alone. It's not what I'm talking about at all. But embedded in the gospel, because what do we see? We see Jesus giving us commands. We see the apostolic writers giving commands to his people. We see them summoning God's people to obey God's word. Direct commands, explicit commands given to God's people. Calls to holiness and purity. Commensurate with the profession that one is making about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's connecting that here. Those who are only hearers and not doers have not truly, perhaps, received with meekness the implanted word. Which is able to save your soul. Calvin wrote, obedience is the mother of true knowledge of God. If we really have the knowledge of God, if we've really heard and understood God's word, well, we're going to do it. We're going to obey it. Profession of faith in Christ must be punctuated with the practice of the word of Christ. Apprehension of the word must be accompanied by application Of the word or something is off. Something's amiss in our life. That's one of the first ways I think we can be deceived by being hearers only and not doers. The second way uh, that we might be deceiving ourselves by being hearers only is this word can also be translated deceive as to cheat. We're in essence cheating ourselves by being hearers only and not doers. 
We're cheating ourselves in the power of the word of God, you know, operating in our life when we actually do it, when we actually respond with obedience to what we read and hear. We miss the opportunity to grow in our faith. We miss the blessing that James writes about here by doing the word of God. We, we miss the opportunity to increase in spiritual maturity. I mean, if we believe God uses his word to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, can that only come by just hearing the word and not responding to it with practice, with obedience? The spiritual habits formed by the consistent practice of the instruction and commands of Scripture shape us. They shape us. Not just reading it, but doing it. And the one who only hears cheats himself out of that. Now, we have this uh, portion here uh, in verse 22 and 23 that we're going to focus on here. Because Paul, uh, James right here rather, is going to expound on this a little bit. More, talking about the hearer only and and the doer. And he demonstrates this contrast between the two uh, by means of this simile he employs here. And he says the hearers, the ones that hear only, are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. But we all know what looking in a mirror. I'm assuming every single one of you looked in a mirror this morning. There might be one or two of you that I wonder if you did. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We all do that, right? When we're getting ready in the morning, what do we do? We're in the bathroom or in your, in your bedroom. You're standing behind the mirror. You're making sure your, your hair's done up right. I know there's some guys who spend a little bit longer time on their hair than they care to admit, right? We always talk about the ladies spending a lot of time on their hair, but some guys spend a little bit of time on their hair too. You know, you got your, you're looking at your teeth to make sure, you know, breakfast isn't stuck in there, Right? Pretty embarrassing. Ladies, you spend time with your makeup, making sure it's right. Those are, the eyelashes are even, you know, right color, you know, on, on the cheeks. Lipstick is on straight, and it's not just smeared like a clown on there, right? We spend time in front of the mirror, but then what happens? We turn away. We turn away. We go about our day. That image in the mirror there, that, that's faded away. It's fleeting. It's, it's temporary. We've, we've forgotten is the, is the terminology that James uses. We, kinda, we forget what we look like. And that's normally what I do. I, I get in there. Betsa and Ariel make fun of how much time I spend brushing my, my, beer out, my beard out and stuff like that. I'd otherwise, it'd be looking like, you know. But then what happens? I go about my day. I don't really think about it as much anymore. I don't think about, about my hair. I really don't know if it's messed up right now. But we go about and we forget. We don't give a second thought. And the point I think that James is trying to make with this um, is that the one who hears the word of God only and doesn't do it has no lasting benefit from the word. No more than a person who goes and looks at their face in the mirror, spends some time doing their stuff, brushing their hair, and then they go away from it and forget that the effect of just being a hearer only is temporary. It's superficial. It doesn't have a lasting impact. And I think that because of the, the contrast that he employs here, because he kind of shifts the illustration here. 
He doesn't talk about a doer of the word being one who looks in a mirror. He doesn't talk about them looking into a mirror now. He talks about them looking into what? The perfect law. The law of liberty. The doer of the word looks into the perfect law. And what? Perseveres. Continues in it. See what I'm see, see why I see that there. It says he's talking about now the word actually having an ongoing effect, an ongoing impact, where the other it's gone. It, it, it was temporary. The doer perseveres, continues, so the word continues to work in him. So now we have to ask ourselves, what is that perfect law? What is the law of liberty? Okay? What is he talking about here? Is he talking about the Mosaic law? Is he talking about the commands that God gave the, his people through Moses? Now, some people interpret that to mean that law. I don't believe that that's in view here in, in what he's talking about. That is considered the law, but that's not the law he's talking about here. And I'm going to show you that in context because of what James says here. First of all, we just read, he wrote about the implanted word that is able to save. Can the Mosaic law save you? Well, yes, it can. It can give you righteousness, but how? Well, you got to obey it perfectly. Who can do that? There's only one who has, right? It's not us. It can't save us. There's no salvation. There's no righteousness in the Mosaic law for us because we can't do it. James 1.18, look what, Paul, what James writes here further on. Of his own will, he brought us forth by what? The word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is that word of truth? It's not the Mosaic law. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's the word of truth. In fact, uh, other apostolic writers refer to it as the word of truth. So he cannot mean that, it, that the Mosaic law can mediate the spiritual birth where only the gospel is said to be able to do that. Being brought forth by the word of truth. The perfect law has to be the good news, the gospel. Because also he calls it the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Well, we know the law isn't the law of liberty. The law, what does it do? Points to us our wickedness. The way we fall short, the way we transgress the law of God because we cannot obey it perfectly. This is, though, the law of liberty. What produces freedom from the tyranny of sin, if not the gospel? If not what Christ accomplished for us? Right? So this is the gospel. right? Because, because in it, we, we, we know that the crushing demands of perfect obedience to the law right, are done away with. Because Christ obeyed that perfectly in our place. And the curse that was imposed on us because of our transgression to the law, well, Jesus bore that curse for us so that we can be free and have his righteousness. So in Christ's fulfilling all of the Old Testament law, the moral law of God, perfectly for his people, well, now it is the perfect law. It's the mature law. It's the completed law. It's the fulfilled law. So I believe James is using this language of of the perfect law and the law of liberty to emphasize 
to these believers reading this letter that the gospel also brings with it a demand like unto the law, a demand of obedience. There are things we also do that don't misunderstand. The doing there doesn't save us. But because we're saved, we do. That's the point here. The gospel does what God promised it would do back in Jeremiah. He would write it on our heart. So now, not only can we do it, we want to do it. We're happy to do it. We desire to do it. We want to do it out of sheer gratitude for God's gracious gift of salvation through Christ. And we'll want to do it because of His enabling grace in our life to be able to do it. We'll not be content just knowing it in our heads. We will want to do it willingly, freely, graciously from the heart. And do everything He's commanded us to do. That's why He says a person who can't do what God tells them to do, He says has a worthless religion. Think about that. You're just a hearer only and not a doer. The religion is worthless. And he uses the example here being able to bridle the tongue. Well, bridling the tongue means that we are submitting ourselves to God's word. The things that God's word instructs us concerning our tongue, of which James has a lot to say about the tongue. When we went through Proverbs, there was a lot to say about the tongue. Well, by God's grace, because we have his spirit, because we have his word. What can we do? We can control our tongue. A person who cannot control their tongue at all, there's a problem. There's a disconnect, and that's the point he's trying to draw out here. That person, he says there in verse 26, has deceived himself. He's deceived his own heart. Religion is worthless. But here's the beautiful thing he talks about here. The one is, who is a doer who acts, the one who's perseveres, continues, and the word has a lasting impact in their life because they're a doer of the word. It says here he is blessed in his doing. There's a reward in his doing. Again, James is not teaching here salvation by works plus grace, okay? It's not salvation by works, but salvation for works, which we already know in Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared for us good works for us to do, prepared in advance. But we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by good deeds. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Christ's obedience. And when we're truly saved, there will be corresponding good works done in obedience to God's word. And he says, there's a blessing in the doing. Not for the doing, a blessing in the doing. Jesus himself said that. Luke 1, 11, 28. Blessed rather are those who what? Hear the word and keep it. Do it. Obey it. All right? And the beautiful thing, I think one of the greater blessings in this is in the doing of his word, in the obeying of his word, we actually will find that doing not something obligatory, not something burdensome, not something just, oh, I don't want to actually delight in doing it. Look what John writes in 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. All right? A lot of, lot of teaching in the New Testament about obeying his commandments, right? 
For this is the love of God, that we, what? And his commandments are not, they're not burdensome. They're not burdensome. We want to do them. We delight in doing them. We see that. We're responding to the gospel. We're responding to the love of God. We're responding to the grace of God by what? By obeying. And we want to because he's given us the heart to do that now. Now, Jesus himself said we are wise when we obey his words and do them. That's what he told us in Matthew chapter 7, right? The, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He gives us this particular parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house where? On the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Person who builds their life on his words and keeps them and does them and obeys them. The other, he said, is a fool. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Again, you're not saved by your obedience. But don't fall into the rut thinking that, well, I don't have to obey and think that everything's going to be rosy in your life. It's not going to. There's actually a blessing in obedience. We're commanded to obey. Grace compels us to obey. We, can get, we kind of get in this thing sometimes in our Christian walk where we think grace and obedience are opposed to one another. They're not. They're not. If we've truly, truly received the grace of God, if the word of God truly is implanted in our heart, we'll want to obey. We'll want to obey. And you'll be blessed in your doing. So when we come to God's word, reading and studying the word of God, we want to make sure it's accompanied by the application of God's word, the doing of God's word, the putting it into practice in our life. All right? So let's move into that. Let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts uh, of application, that third part of our principle of understanding. What do we mean by applying scripture? The word apply or application comes from the Latin, a word that means to fasten to something, to adhere to something, or to be attached or to attach something to another object. So think about that in the context of When we talk about applying God's word or applying scripture, what are we doing? We're wanting to fasten, adhere, attach the truth of God's word to our life or to a situation in our life. To adhere it that way. Putting the scripture to work. Doing something with scripture where it has implications for your life. Applying scripture We do that by bringing it to bear on our life as a demonstration of our submission to the authority of Scripture. We won't apply God's Word to our life if we don't think of it as authoritative or sufficient, able to actually do what it says it will do, right? So we're to do something with everything that we hear and read in Scripture. Everything? Yes, everything. Everything in Scripture that you read or study can have an application to something in your life currently. We put it in practice. You know, in Philippians chapter 4, here's what Paul says, uh, 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
tuck it away in your brain for future reference. Now, he says what? Practice these things. Practice them. Right? Now, I said last week in the process of interpretation, what we're doing there is endeavoring to understand what the text means, what it meant to the original audience in their time, in their context, in their unique situation that they were walking through, their culture, their language, all that. So we, we ask, what did it mean to them? Because we're not trying to create meaning. Please, I'm going to keep drilling that home. You're not the one who determines the meaning of a text, okay? What did it mean to them? What did God intentionally? could only have one meaning. Scripture only has one meaning. However, it has many, many points of application. It, it really and truly does. You just need to make sure you understand what it means before you apply it. So application involves identifying how you will respond to God's word after you have read, studied, observed, and interpreted scripture and know what it means. And to then come to the place of application, what we need to do through that work of observation and interpretation, knowing what it says, knowing what it means, is to extract from the text the timeless general principle that we'll use to now apply it personally to our life in a particular situation. Okay? Because think about this. There are explicit commands in Scripture. We just read a few in James, didn't we? But not everything in Scripture is an explicit command, is it? It's not. When you're reading the story of Abraham, there's no explicit command there, is there? When you're reading the Psalms, many of them, they're they're not explicit commands there. You're not going to know immediately what to do. And as you're going to see in just a few moments, not even knowing what it's telling us to do means that we're going to apply it specifically the way it was commanded to the person it was given to. There is work that we need to do here. Even in those that tell us explicitly do this or don't do this. Okay, That's why we got to do a little work. Scripture contains these different literary genres. So we have to understand, how do we apply that? We worked again through that when we looked at the wisdom literature in Proverbs. You don't just take a proverb and know immediately how to run with it and what to do with it and how to apply it. Okay? It's very important. We have to draw out through proper... Remember, we talked about exegesis and eisegesis last week. But through proper exegesis, knowing what the text says, what it means, and from the text, we draw out this timeless general principle That is found in the text. And by far this can be one of the more challenging aspects of working through of understanding God's word to come about with proper application. But those previous steps get us to this principle here. Okay, After we've already done observation and interpretation, to get to this timeless general principle, you know, think about, well, what are some of the differences between the people who whom this text was given to originally, and me. This is an ancient book, ancient writing, ancient culture, ancient language, removed by thousands of years of history. I first need to understand what it meant to them, so now I'm coming here, 21st century, in the modern world, how can that, what differences between us, but also what similarities? Because after all, we all share the human experience, don't we? Different culture, different language, different time, different experiences, different events 
and life situations maybe that we go through, but we all share the common experience that we are part of the fallen race, children of Adam in a broken world, okay? There's some similarities there, so we catalog those particular things to be able to now work out and extract this timeless general principle. Let's go back to the illustration, uh, the, the verse rather that we used last week and began to look, like, look at in Jeremiah 29, 11. Remember that one? A great promise there. Uh, and, and let's see if we can discover the timeless theological general principle there for personal application. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or prosperity, as some of your translations say, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Familiar passage, wonderful passage, great promise for the people of God there. But as I said last week, there is nothing about this passage that is a blanket promise that you as a believer are going to have a life of just ease. Puppies, rainbows, unicorns financial wealth, never get sick a day in your life. It's just amazing. Truly your best life now. That's not at all what this passage promises the people of God. So we know it's not that, but we do some observation and we do some interpretation. Last week we walked through that. The literary genre of Jeremiah is what? What's the book of Jeremiah classified as? Prophecy, right? It's prophecy. There's a prophetic word. Jeremiah is the prophet of the Lord. He is speaking for God. He's making pronouncements for God. In this case, we need to understand who is he making those pronouncements to? He's making those pronouncements to the people of God. In this case, in this time in in, in history, the, the kingdom was divided, and this is now the southern kingdom of Judah, who already... Judah had already been sacked by Babylon and thousands of God's people had already been carted off into exile in Babylon and others were going to shortly follow. And he had already written several letters to the people of God with warnings and bringing correction. And now in this letter, he's not only just bringing correction, but he's also bringing a word of comfort and hope to the people of God who are in exile or who would shortly be in exile. Okay? And, and the word is a word to, to continue to trust and hope in the covenant promises of God. As they await their deliverance in this strange and foreign land. That they now find themselves into in because of their repeated idolatry and rebellion. They're going to have, he tells them. By word of the Lord, a 70-year seven, a sentence in exile. Okay? And God says to them, guys, settle in for the long haul. It's not going to be short. It's going to be 70 years. Build houses, plant vineyards, you know, give your children to marry, get married. If you're not married, get married. Have kids, build houses, farm the land. Just, you're going to be there a while. 70 years is not a good time to just live in your car, is it? <laughs> okay, just settle in for, for the long haul. But here's the beautiful thing. God has plans concerning his people. There is a future for his people. There is hope for his people. 
And, and it's for their general welfare. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Means peace, means health, means prosperity. But it's, it's about the universal thriving. His people are going to thrive in the foreign land, in exile. God says he is going to preserve them and taking care of them through all that they're going to endure. He has good plans for them, not evil plans for them. After all, who are they? This is his covenant people. He loves them, even though he's punishing them in this particular moment. God is faithful to his people, even when they are not faithful. Now, this is not an individual personal promise. When he says, I have plans for you, that you is not individual. The you is plural. It's corporate. It is to the collective body of people who are going into exile at that time. So we need to understand all those things to interpret what it means. And that's what this passage means. This is not just a standalone promise you pluck out of Scripture. It was given to a unique people in a unique situation in a unique time. It is not a personal promise of financial wealth and health for Israel. Okay? I have news for you. 70 years. How many of those people lived all those 70 years? Probably not many of them. They suffered. They're in exile. It wasn't all happy. It wasn't all nice. But God says they're going to be brought back to the land that he promised them. Everything he said concerning his covenant would come to pass. What it is, is a reminder of how God will preserve them through his providential hand. That God, through, through, uh, that God was still very much in control. Even if it seemed to these people, right, like their world had completely fallen apart. Put yourself in their situation. Imagine you being taken captive. And you're not kept in your land. You're taken thousands of miles away to a foreign culture. You don't even understand the language. Different practices. And you're an oppressed people, not, not the people of Babylon. You're in captivity. So it wasn't a pretty picture. It wasn't a rosy picture for them. But God says, make no mistake, I've not abandoned you. I'm still in control, but you're going to be there a while. It won't be quick. As we said last week, there were false prophets coming around saying, don't worry, guys, this is going to be short. Don't worry, we're going to be back in the swing of the glory days of Israel. Nope. God says it's going to be 70 years, but I still have got you. It's a beautiful promise. It's an awesome promise. But now we ask, how does that apply to us? How do we make application of this particular promise to his people in Scripture? Do I apply it like it applies to them? Well, you know the answer already. No, you can't. You're not 6th century, you know, Israel in exile in Babylon. Are you? Like I said last week, unless you're a time traveler, that's not you. It's not me. But does it hold promise for us? Yeah, 100% it does. Absolutely does. It's just not like it did for them. We already know immediately we can see and spot the differences between us, right? We've not been ripped from our homeland, you know, uh, you know, 
we're not in a different culture. Like we understand generally our culture, the language, all of that. There's no land promise for us. God's not promising to bring us back to a particular geographical land after 70 years in exile. But what are some of the similarities here? Let me, let me kind of just open this up. Just shout from your seat. What immediately could we say are some of the similarities we have with the people of God experiencing exile and what they're going through? Just some, somebody, come on. What's that? That We get sick. Yeah, what else? Putting you to work here. Come on. Yeah. We are kind of exiles in a sense, aren't we? We're pilgrims and strangers in this land, Peter tells us. This is a strange world, right? Because this is not our home. What else? There's oppression, yeah. What did Babylon want to do? If you read Daniel, immediately we know, right? Daniel was someone who was taken into captivity as well. What do we immediately know? What did they do? They changed their names. Everything was acclimating them now to the culture of Babylon to forget and remove any trace or remnant of who he was. And this is exactly what happens to us in this world, right? And some of us are suffering. Some of us are in affliction. Maybe have been experiencing it for some time. I'd imagine like, like these people, right, uh, in that they might have thought God had abandoned them completely. Well, haven't we gone through times where we were like, where, where are you, God? I, I thought this was, the outcome of this was going to be different. I mean, on and on, we can come up with, a, with many things of, of similarities between these particular group of people and what they uh, experience. And we need all of that t- to help us draw personal application for our life, this timeless general principle here. And what, I, what I'd want you to do then is to kind of, the passage you're studying and, and that you're going to personally apply, try to write out a sentence, a statement about what that timeless general principle is. And it will be a principle that you can find in other portions of Scripture also. This is what I wrote about this one. It's probably a little bit lengthier than I'd want to, but there's so much even in that one particular promise that we read in Jeremiah 29. But I think the timeless general principle here is that we can trust God because God is in control and he works for the good of his people, preserving them for the glorious future he has for them. And we could see that in a multitude of scriptures, not, not just this particular one. But what do we see here? He's telling people, listen, don't lose hope. You can trust God. He's faithful. He's got good plans for you. Like the future is secure, but let me tell you, it's, it's going to be a bumpy ride, 70 years. Some of you aren't going to see it. Some of you won't make it back to the promised land. But everything concerning his people and his covenant faithfulness will happen, will come to pass. Right? So I think that's the timeless general principle here. Trust, we can trust God because God is in control and he works for the good of his people, preserving them for the glorious future he has for them. Now, Here's why we can claim these kind of promises. Now, we don't claim them like there's some magic formula. And again, these promises are not for unbelievers. These are for believers. These are for those who are in Christ Jesus. If they're not in Christ Jesus, this does not apply for them. There isn't a good future. 
for the unbeliever, is there? There's not a good plan or a good future for those who reject Jesus Christ. Okay, But for believers, here's why we can claim them. The reason we can claim this promise is because Jesus, the faithful son, perfectly obeyed, and he has inherited every single one of the covenant promises made to Israel through his perfect obedience. It's what Paul tells us about the promises of God in 2 Corinthians 1.20. All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ Jesus. Find their fulfillment because he's the faithful son. Where Israel failed, Jesus prevailed. Jesus obeyed. and We now, being in Christ, inherit the promises by virtue of being in him. And that's the beautiful thing. We look at this promise, but we know it's not the fulfillment's not the same, but the general timeless principle here is, okay? And so let's look at some of the way that promises comes to us now. We've, we've talked about some of these things already. We're in this world. We're in this life. We suffer. You will go through suffering at some point in this life, maybe not even for a little while. Could be a, it could be a long season, just like for the Israelites there. It's promised. It's, it, that's a guarantee in this life, okay? We don't have the promise of ease and bliss, but we do have this. God does promise that this is not your best life now. But your suffering does have an expiration date, doesn't it? It does. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe not in this life will that affliction be removed or that suffering cease. But we have a future and a hope that is certain, that is assured, that is guaranteed, kept in heaven for us, undefiled. We will have the glory he has promised us where there will be no more sickness or pain or crying or tears or suffering or affliction. That's ours. So we can continue to trust and have hope as a result of that. Life will get difficult. The season of trouble may last a long time, but God is still in control through all of it, brothers and sisters. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose hope in that. If you're in Christ, God has good plans that are guaranteed to come to pass. In fact, he says that Everything you and I go through is for our good. Everything. The trial you're going through, the trouble you're going through, the affliction you're going through, the suffering you're walking through, the pain you're walking through, the good, the bad, the ugly. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And that good is that he guarantees the outcome of what he says following. That you and I will be conformed to Christ. Made in the image and likeness of his son. We will inherit every promise that Christ has made to us as his people. Timeless principle is that God is faithful. We can trust him. God will preserve us through our entire sojourn. In this life, brothers and sisters, whatever might come, 
So you think about your personal situation right now. You think of what you're walking through. This is why there's many applications here because it depends on what you're going through and you're going through and you're going through and you're going through and I'm going through. I will look at this passage. I'll extract this principle and say, God, I've not been trusting you in this area. In fact, I've been having a pity party in this area. (laughs) I have not really believed you've been in control of this situation. So I've been trying to steer my life and make things work in my life, but I yield to you. you. You know it. Maybe we haven't been trusting in his providential care. We think God has left us or abandoned us. On and on and on, thinking about your situation and what you're experiencing right now, you can take comfort in this promise of Scripture. And even if the night is really long, even if, if daybreak is really, 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 really far off, God's promises don't change. He's faithful. You can trust him. He's in control. What we do know is that, yeah, there's sometimes he gives us financial prosperity and, and, and maybe good health in life. But we don't take those things for granted. And we certainly don't approach this promise like a magic formula we we quote, we, we do know there's a future and a hope. And that is far more glorious than any promise that these false teachers make about just, just material prosperity and health in life. Because that's not what's promised here. What's promised is here, God has us all the way through this. Regardless of what you and I are going through. No matter what you and I are going through. That's what you have to believe So your application might be, maybe I need to repent of my unbelief in these things, in his providence, in his care, in his faithfulness, in my doubts of him being in control, being there for us. Maybe it's the application is, I look at my personal suffering right now in light of the future hope and glory that's before me and and how I can endure, you know, through that. Maybe, again, I've been, I've been steeped in, in, in false, the false prosperity garbage here and, and, and the listening to the prosperity peddlers and thinking that's really the, the outcome of the favor of God and the blessings of God in life. And I just I need to cease listening to that and repent of that. Maybe it's that I just need to now trust God in the midst of my trial, in the middle of it, and in his providence. Again, we're going to apply the same timeless general principle in slightly different ways depending on our life situation, depending on where we are in our relationship with God right now, depending on our spiritual maturity. It's going to look different. Many applications, one meaning, all right? One meaning, all right? So we just need to have a good grasp of that general timeless principle to be able to apply it to our life. Now, let me give you some just tools quickly to help you uh, apply Scripture here. Uh, Generally, there's four outcomes of application. Things to know, things to do, things to pray, things to praise God for is is how I would break it down. Things to know, and you can see these in the the online sermon notes, okay? You don't need to take notes right now on this. But things to know, right? When you come to Scripture, clearly they're going to be truths that we have to apprehend. Truths that we need to, to believe. 
Everything in scripture says something to us about God, his nature. Says something to us about humanity, uh, our sinfulness, right? This world, all of that. So we come to scripture, we see those things, and those are things we need to apprehend and believe. And the more we study and apply scripture, the more this lens, this biblical worldview is shaped. The more we begin to think God's thoughts after him as we study his word, observe and interpret and apply these things to our life. There's things we need to know. And maybe that's the application that needs to be made. There's a truth. I need to believe it. I need to I need to hold fast to it. Things to do again, explicit commands to obey God. Do this. Don't do this. And sometimes, though, they're indirect commands. We don't we have to do a little bit work to get to the thing we need to do. But again, we're always commanded to do something. Repent, believe, commanded to glorify God, look at all the one another's in scriptures. There's things that we do uh, in application. Things to pray for. Scripture contains an inexhaustible supply of prayer points. You will never be bored and wonder, what must I pray about? Pray the scripture <laughs> like it's never ending, right? It's an endless fountain of things to pray for. So that's part of the ap- application of scripture. You apply God's word to your life? Pray it. Pray. Remember I talked about application means to fasten? Well, one of the ways to fasten truth and scripture to your life is by praying it. And again, things to praise God for. Your heart should overflow with praise and worship as God reveals things to you through his word. There are a few times that I would say I read scripture and there isn't something that evokes praise and thanksgiving and gratitude in my life to God as I come to his word. There is an endless stream of things to worship God for, thank God for, and praise him for in scripture. Uh, a few tips on uh, different, uh, when you're applying scripture in the different genre of literature. Again, we're looking for broad principles, and that that's sometimes is the challenge because it's not readily available or seen to you. Think about when you read narrative, and you're reading Genesis and Exodus. Even though you have the law uh, in, starting in Exodus, but think about Genesis. You're just reading a story here. Here's what happened. We're introduced to Bible characters, but those are rich in application. And it's not just the moral lessons we tend to just draw from them. We'll also look at their example. Hebrews 11 gives us an amazing list of what? We call that the hall of what? It's the hall of faith. People of great faith. Well, why are they there? They're set for us as examples. So we're going to look at their life, right? It's their exemplary faith and, and model it. But we also learn and draw application from those of less than exemplary faith, right? We, we see the opposite end of that. Narrative calls us to a life of faith, reveals the character and work of God, much application comes from studying uh, narrative and the historical writing. Uh, when it comes to the prophecy, law, wisdom, literature, that's going to contain a lot of explicit commands. But again, we're drawing out broad principles. Just a general example, and I don't have time to really dive into this deep, but I encourage you to do this work. Think about in the law, the command to honor your father and mother. Now, here's some counsel I've had to give people because they come to me and say, do I still honor my father and mother even though I'm married and have kids? What do you think the answer to that is? Yes. 
But wouldn't you apply that differently than when you were a 5-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old, or a 40-something-year-old with your own family? It's different. Well, am I to honor my father and mother? How does that look like? What if my, what if my elderly parents are foolish? They're not serving God. They make wrong decisions, and it creates a lot of problems in life. Am I still to honor them? Yeah, but you also, you need to spend some time working through that. What does that look like? You see, it's not just cut and dry. It's not just accepting everything. No, there, there's, there's a manner. There's a way that you're, you're obeying God. You're obeying the explicit commands of Scripture. But the application, the outworking of that, you have to kind of wrestle through that a little bit to come to how, how that's applied. Again, the Psalms and prayers teach us how to pray. Psalms and the different prayers of Scripture, what do they do? They put words in our mouth, and I love that. So I say pray God's Word. Praise God using the words of Scripture because it helps us express our thoughts, feelings, and longings for God. And, and then in the New Testament letter, letters, what do you have? A lot of doctrine there. There's a lot of teaching um, that reveal things about God's character and His attributes. And when we study those things and we learn those things about God, isn't God's character the character you and I should be seeking to reflect in our life? Yes, right? It is. So we we need to to learn this truth, right? Uh, All the truth that that is asserted there, we accept it, we believe it, and, and ask questions like, if this doctrine is true, then what is the corresponding thoughts and actions that must follow? Because that's how I'm supposed to obey it. That's how I'm supposed to do it, as James says. How should this doctrine shape my life, thoughts, emotions, and actions if I truly believe it? Learning doctrine is not just about getting your head nice and big and plump with facts and information about God. It must shape your life and practice. Otherwise, what good is it? It's worthless. All right. I'm going to have a lot of time here to get to it. Let me wrap up with these last questions to help you, questions to help you discover <clears throat> application points. Nine questions. You may want to write these in your Bible or write them on a sheet of paper and tape them to the inside of your Bible. Again, they're in the sermon notes there. Uh, but they'll help you discover application points. As you come to a text, you've studied it, observed it, interpreted it. Number one, ask, is there a sin to confess? Again, we're called to repent of our sin. Well, sometimes when we read Scripture, what does it do? It exposes something, something sinful in our own hearts that we are to confess and bring to Christ and lean into the gospel. I think of our passage that we just read in James. If I'm just a hearer only and not a doer, I have to repent. Okay? Is there a promise to claim? Again, there's a blessing in in doing the word, we're told in James. Is there a promise to claim in Scripture? Is there an attitude to change? Well, looking at that passage in James, if I've had an indifference to God's word and, and really didn't care a whole lot about the doing, but just the hearing only, well, there could be a sin. There's sin there, obviously, but there's also an attitude in my life that needs to be adjusted. It needs to change. Is there a command to obey in Scripture? Again, for application, Explicit, direct, or indirect, right? Well, in, in the passage in James, we're commanded to be a doer of the word. We're commanded to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
Is there an example to follow? Again, we just talked about narrative in Scripture, right? Is there an example to follow? Is there a prayer to pray? Is there an error to avoid? Is there a truth to believe? Is there something praiseworthy? These nine questions can help you then draw out from the text uh, uh, a point of personal application to your life. Do the word. Obey the word. Put it into practice in your life. Endless points of application, brothers and sisters. You're going to see how God begins to shape your life and change your life and transform your life when you put God's word to work. And here we come to this part of the process where simply to ask, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to praise you for? What do you want me to pray for? God's word is living and active. There's a blessing in the doing. And it's energized, brothers and sisters, by the inextinguishable, inexhaustible power of the Holy Spirit. Don't doubt it for a moment. He will help you, brothers and sisters. Take God's word into your heart. Work it into your life. Work it out into your world to change you and conform you to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.